good morning and welcome back to the Earthsea Love Podcast. And this is Monday morning, just come out of the sea. Fingertips and toes are a bit numb. Hugging a mug of coffee while I make the final edits to our next episode. And this is episode 017 with Jessica J. Lee. Um, And this is a good one. (laughs) I know I say that every time. But, you know, I mean it. Jessica used to live in Berlin. And that's where she got into wild swimming. Swimming in the lakes in Berlin and around Germany. And, um, And that's how I was introduced to Jessica through Jessica writing, nature writing about um, her swims in the nature writing book Turning, which we talk about in this episode. And we also talk about second nature writing book, Two Trees Make a Forest. And Jessica has just been named as the 2020 Hillary Weston Writers Trust Prize for nonfiction um, and was also 2019 RBC Taylor Prize Emerging Writer Award winner. Sitting down with Jessica was an honour because I've always admired her writing, but then to actually talk to her and get behind the words and to find out her motivations or her thinking was really good. It was so good. Um, and again, this was recorded maybe, yes, August, mid-August. Um, so we're in lockdown and we're still in lockdown now. And this is nearly the end of November. Well, we talk about language, place, identity, island, and also about that issue which is happening now of the scarcity of exposure for black nature writing and it's a case of it's just not getting out there it's there we are writing but it's just not getting that centering that elevation that amplification that other nature writing um does get and this was the motivation behind Jessica starting the Willow Hope Review, which is an online space for black nature writing. Nature writing from people of the global majority, yes. And I'm so pleased that this space exists because it just makes it easier to find my tribe. So on that note, I'd like to introduce you to another person who's part of my tribe, Jessica J. Lee. Please sit back or even walk. I hear that some of you walk and listen to this podcast, which I think is awesome. So yeah, enjoy and see you back here for the next episode. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome, welcome to the Earth Sea Love Podcast. 
this podcast is for and about women of colour and our relationship with nature. Hosted by me, Cherie Mack. The Earth Sea Love podcast is committed to exploring the experiences of women of colour with Mother Nature. We want to provide spaces where the hidden voices in the environmental and conservation conversations can explore their relationship with the natural world. Inspired by our time spent outdoors, we amplify the voices of women of colour, our stories, our conversations, interviews, photography, writing and artwork. We'll be exploring our legacies, histories and memories which have had an influence and effect upon how we perceive ourselves within the natural world and within the environmental and climate justice movements. Welcome to the Earth Sea Love Podcast. The Earth Sea Love Podcast has been made possible by the funding from National Lottery Heritage Fund. Thank you. Well, it's lovely to see you. (laughs) How you've been during these strange times, strange and turbulent times, and like, and where you're situated, like, can you see nature where you are now? Um, yeah, I, let's see, during the past little while, uh, I have been, I feel like it's been okay. I, I, because I already work from home, it's, it's not been a huge change for me if I'm honest, but it does mean my husband's also working from home and um, I think the biggest change actually is just for my dog who has us around all the time. Uh-huh. Um, so I think in a way it wasn't a huge transition, but you know, at first it took a little while for me to get over the boredom of not really doing anything else. But if I'm honest, the longer I spent at home, the more I realized I'm like, I'm actually quite a homebody and quite mm-hmm. reclusive. And so it worked well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm surprised that, like, I, I'm surprised to say that I do feel somewhat connected to the natural world living where we are, because we live, we live in central Berlin, mm-hmm. and I feel like I hadn't really spent a lot of time getting to know my neighborhood uh, when it comes to plants and the trees and just really noticing those details. I was always going out into the countryside or going to lakes or going to forests, and, you know, once we were really just here at home... Um, I don't know, I really looked out my window and I, I actually noticed yes. that there were multiple great trees outside my window and I planted a little communal garden with my neighbors in our shared courtyard and so I've been, you know, tending to the vegetable garden every day and that has really been a bit of a solace for me mm. um, and even just to get my hands in the soil, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. It resonates with me, the idea of maybe going out further to connect with nature rather than what's on our doorsteps and I know because where I live I live on the coast so I have been like always connected with the seas because I like to wild swim but I think during this time I even made that a bit smaller and 
didn't quite connect as much with the sea but maybe just at the park that was just around the corner so yeah and I think a lot of people can say they've had that reignited reconnection reappreciation of nature around them yeah just and closeness with the local the local patch right like for me it feels much more intimate in this way it's like that staying close to home and really getting to know the bits that are just outside the door um you know you know I'd always sort of noticed them but I never really looked you know I never really paid attention and so feeling a closeness with that mm. is I think key takeaway I've had over the past few months yeah yeah I can definitely agree with that and I suppose it's also thrown up to me the idea of privilege that I have that I have got these green spaces close by to enjoy while there's many like us that haven't had that that green space too and Mm -hmm. and a feeling a feeling the the absence of it as well so I am grateful I am grateful for a lot of things um, yeah, it's really underscored that. <laughs> I think for me, realizing how nice a bit I live in, actually, it's been really a good reminder. Yeah, and sometimes we need that, don't we? You know, that's just, so this whole pandemic has been a big, huge reminder of not taking things for granted, in a sense, mm-hmm. I say. Right, so I first came to you, Jessica, through turning lessons from swimming in Burling Lakes. It's how I found you because I was I was really diving into my own relationship with water and I was reading these memoir stroke nature writing texts I would say around water and trying to find that language I would say to marry my identity with the natural world um, and I found yours really inspiring. Is, is it all right if you talk about a bit about this book because first of all I'd yeah. like to know how did you get into swimming these lakes in Berlin or, or should I ask you how you got to Berlin maybe <laughs> I mean it's all sort of tied together it's really sort of one story um I originally came to Berlin uh during my doctorate I was doing a research placement here at uh, the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science I had like a one-term fellowship here and so I was sent here and it was this thing that I hadn't really planned I wasn't intending to move to Germany um, I thought I would be going back to the UK to finish my field work for my PhD which was about Hampstead Heath and part of which involved um, field work with winter swimmers at the Kenwood Ladies Pond yeah, yeah. so I was ready in that headspace to go back to Britain to finish my field work and to really sort of you know dig into that and I ended up coming to Berlin for this this research stay and um, because I knew I was going to be doing this field work with the winter swimmers I had been instructed that I should really just keep swimming as often as I could so that by the time winter came I would be you know really set for it Um, so I did and I realized when I got here that this was a city that basically is surrounded by lakes there are over 3,000 in the region and it's just one of those things I didn't really know about before I moved here I feel like my associations were with Berlin were much more historical or much more with sort of millennial cool in a way yeah, yeah. and I yeah. thought okay, this will be like a fun place to be for a few months and instead I got here and I ended up spending all of my time sort of cycling out into the countryside jumping into really cold lakes and developing like a real intimacy with the landscape here. And um, that surprised me. 
and mm-hmm. completely threw my big plan sort of <laughs> off kilter. And I ended up staying here and I've been here now for six years. Um, and yeah, I ended up swimming quite a lot uh, in that time. Yeah. 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 And it's, um, it's interesting that you're saying about jumping into the cold and there's something about that. I mean, I jump into the sea and it's always cold. It's the North Sea. Um, and there's a fear. There is a fear. Every time I go to the water, there's a fear. And there's a fear of like, what's it going to be like? But then also there's that fear of like, where's the bottom or not? And and this is something that you've experienced, no? Yeah. I, I mean, I was really terrified of particularly lake swimming, but of swimming in, I would say, any natural body of water uh, for most of my life until I was about maybe 19. Um, and then I started so, sort of slowly getting into the idea of lake swimming. But I will say the fear of that has never left. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people always say to me, how did you overcome your fear yeah. of, of swimming, like a wild swimming? And I would say, well, you don't. Like, I, I've never overcome the fear. I just swim with it. Yeah. Um, and that is sort of important to me to be like, okay, I can be scared of something and acknowledge that and mm-hmm. say, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to, I want to get out and feel the water on my skin. I want that sensation. Um, and for me, that's why it, it is, you know, it seems cliche to say it's a bit like meditation, but there is that, I think, sustained focus. If you're trying to not think about how scary something is while you're yes. doing it, for me, it's like, look at the horizon, feel the sensation, look at the sky don't think about the depth don't yeah. think about the bit that really scares me you know and and that is i think a really good mental exercise for me to be able to focus on mm. on something as i'm moving through fear i guess yeah yeah and that's such a really good way of describing it actually of um as a meditation um and you know if you're thinking about how as we meditate and it is it is being aware of those those thoughts but just letting them pass and remaining in that present moment of whatever you're feeling and whatever those sensations are and you you know that fear helps but also the cold does help to bring you back into your body and sure does. <laughs> yeah 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 and um, but you mentioned your studies and you're an environmental historian yeah and there's yeah. this lovely word is it limonology or limonology and limonology, yeah. yeah can you explain that please because I think I came into um, an understanding of it through um, mountain lakes in Snowdonia, which again are bottomless, they say. Um, so yeah, so please explain that because I think it's gorgeous. Yeah, limnology. So limnology is just, I mean, it's a really broad term, which is perhaps not even all that useful from a scientific standpoint, but it basically just refers to the study of, of lakes, the study of freshwaters. Um, and I got really into reading old limnological, limnological texts and speaking to limnologists and freshwater ecologists mm-hmm. while I was writing Turning, um, partly because I wanted something to counterbalance my own very aesthetic, very personal, very emotional relationship to lakes and to swimming. Um, so it was a field that I didn't really know anything about before I got into it. Um, and it, you know, it encompasses everything from sort of the biology and chemistry of freshwater lakes, um, re- like through to, um, you know, the geology of them, how they are 
uh, how are they were how they were formed. Um, so it's a really broad field. You know, it, it covers physics and chemistry and biology. Mm-hmm. And I mean, these days you would most most likely speak of being a freshwater ecologist. But um, limnology is a kind of I think it's a lovely old word and an mm-hmm. old umbrella category that I, I quite enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was quite a fascinating thing to, for want of a better word, dive into. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, because like, as I say, it was a case of like, the idea of what the water rolls over will affect clarity of that water, the blueness or the greenness of the water. Yeah, uh, getting to know the cycles of lakes, that was a, like, a big part of, I think, my thinking around the book um because it is something that it's like when you are a regular swimmer if you're swimming in a body of water you know a few times a week the entire year you notice every single change and it was really important for me to understand perhaps from a scientific standpoint you could say what actually was happening there Mm -hmm. um and to be able to actually say this is something that you can really sense you don't you don't need to be a limnologist to notice it you can be a swimmer and you will notice it and um that was really i don't know it was quite profound for me to say okay this is a way of connecting with place that Mm. you know is is a bit different than the way i would normally do it um and that i could hold all of those together yeah i love that i love that and also if you're thinking about place and we've also talked about limonology and the language there's a quote that you say home is as much in a language as in as it is in a landscape and I found that really interesting because that's something that you have in turning but then it's also come back up again in your recent book um two trees make a forest I've been reading it um and it's in there is like like home is a language that idea and I suppose I want to like go back a bit further okay you're in Berlin but you've had your home in many different places also your ancestors have do you want to touch upon that if you can please yeah. i mean i think so i became really preoccupied with the idea of language when i moved to germany um and i think that was because um i've always been multilingual since i was a child uh as i was learning german i realized german became the sort of 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 my non-english languages it became the strongest one for me which was quite I think shocking and it sort of unmoored me in a way. Um, my mom's my mum was born in Taiwan and her family came from China originally. Um, and my dad's Welsh and I was born in Canada. So I grew up just with a lot of languages and migrations in my family history. And the big thing for me was that, you know, my first language was Mandarin and um, I lost it as a child. You know, I spoke it quite a lot when I was small and then by the time I was maybe six or so, I, you know, I, I quit going to Chinese school. I didn't like it. Um, we stopped speaking Mandarin at home. And it, in a way, it's something I've never fully gotten back. I didn't really think a lot about that until I got to the point where I realized my German was better than my Mandarin. Mm. And that was one of those moments for me that was, I don't know, it was like upsetting in a way, which seems silly. You know, I should have been happy that my German was so good, but I, there was, it felt like a violation of, of my family's connection. And, you know, as if I had treated something that should have been treated with care sort of flippantly. Um, and so it made me really feel I think I could feel a sense of home and connection when it came back to language. And I, I still find it when I, when I speak Mandarin, you know, it's like I speak like baby Mandarin, like a toddler. But it still feels to me like the most in, like intimate thing. It feels to me like the language of motherly care from my childhood. Mm. A lot of that tied up with, you know, when you move around a lot, 
obviously there are a lot of places that become home, but I think it's not just in the physical places that we have that sensation, right? So mm-hmm. much of it in how we speak and how we communicate and, you know, sometimes for me it could be as simple as listening to a song in in Chinese that really can bring me back to that feeling. Yeah, and just when you're saying that, I'm just thinking memories as well memories of objects that we associate with a person that was in that certain place and if we're thinking about your second your second do you call them novels or creative uh, nonfiction? Memoirs. I would say yeah. memoirs. Yeah. Nature, right? nature memoirs <laughs> I'm not putting any labels on it or any trying to put you in any boxes right but you know two trees make a forest just that title reminded me of Iceland like the history of Iceland was that they did have trees, but they were all cut down to build or to use as firewood. So there is that saying is like, you know, when there is, if you find, find a couple of trees, oh, it's a forest sort of thing. So it really reminded me of that. But then also when you're talking about um, within that memoir, Nature Writing, the idea of islands, Iceland, island, how you are studying islands and how, I don't know, the fascination that we do have with islands because we're we're living on an island. But what is that thing? Do you think about islands? You've been to Taiwan, haven't you? Yeah, I spent a lot of time in Taiwan for writing Two Trees and obviously just with my mum. I think for me, I, I find islands really fascinating because, how do I put it? I didn't grow up on one. I grew up like in the middle of Canada, not in the middle, but in the eastern part of Canada, fairly landlocked. We had mm. the Great Lakes nearby, but you know, it wasn't like I didn't I didn't grow up on an island. And I think for me, they just sort of fascinate me in terms of what they can mean for the biological sciences. Uh, Taiwan in particular has a really high rate of of biodiversity and there mm. are a lot of endemic species and I I find I find little things like that quite interesting. Um, But I think also because we have such potent imaginations for what islands mean, you know, there's so many significant islands in myth, in history, in literature. Mm. Um, And when, when we speak about islands today, particularly island nations, I think it's really hard sometimes to separate those things Mm. away from how we think about them. And Taiwan obviously is a very contested uh, nation Mm. and, um, for me, I think questioning that idea of an island and, and what an island affords, and obviously Taiwan is actually made up not just of one island, but of many, mm-hmm. um, being able to really sort of interrogate that question and to think about like how islands do connect to mainlands and to continents and mm-hmm. to other land masses. Um, but yeah, I, I, for me, there was also this issue, it goes back to language again, you know, and I opened the book with this this sort of question. It's how we think about like what an island means. Um, I think, you know, in, in English and in most European languages, we think of islands in relation to water, mm. um, which is obviously really resonant for me. But, you know, in, in, in Chinese, the, the character that we use to write the word for island is actually a bird sitting on a mountain. That for me, I think was really, I think, profound because Taiwan as an island is incredibly mountainous, mm. rich with bird life. Um, but also speaks to, I think, a different kind of framing that, how do I put it, height and this sort of geological escalation of of mountains is perhaps more significant to speak about there than the water. But yeah, I I don't know. It was just one of those things that I found curious and I liked that gap. I liked thinking that we might approach them differently. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So yeah, it was really helpful for me to think about. There's something also in there, the idea of how places draw us in, but then also can push push us back. Thinking about the natural world, how do you feel that has drawn you in? And, and was that there within your childhood or not? I mean, as you said, Central Canada, was that, was that part of your upbringing, the natural world? I mean, the natural world was... I think in intellectually was definitely a part of my, my childhood and my upbringing. When I was little, I really wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, <laughs> as it turns out, I'm really rubbish at science. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I'm good at the sort of more humanities-based thinking around science, which yeah. is why I do what I do now. Um, you know, I was I was quite timid and afraid, I think, of what we might term wilderness or the natural world now. Um, like when I was a kid, we used to go on family hikes or camping trips or whatever, but I wasn't a kid that liked to sort of get muddy. I didn't like to go on rugged adventures. Um, and I don't think it's because, how do I put it? It's not, I, I don't think it's because I didn't want to. I just think I had a lot of fear. And mm. in adulthood, it's been really an exercise for me in sort of working with that fear and saying, you know, I want to be a person that goes on really fun adventures. I really want to climb that mountain. I really want to, you know, camp out and stay here by myself under the stars and to say, actually, I might be terrified and I might think I can't do that, but actually I can. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I think I spent, you know, my childhood going in one direction and my adulthood has been like, uh, I guess, compensating for that in some way, which is why now I really, you know, I like to go climb up mountains and write about it. I like to, you know, jump into frozen lakes and, and write about it and, you know, have sort of figured out a way to make that my job. Um, but it's not something I think I could have imagined when I was a kid. Like, mm. I could have dreamed it because I would have loved to, but I was too afraid. Mm. Um, if you had told me that I would get over that fear or not get over it, but, you know, learn to work through that fear, um, I, I might not have believed you. <laughs> mm. Yeah, the natural world wasn't part of my upbringing. Um, yeah, I think for a lot of people of color, this is often the case. Yeah. Um, and there is that sort of sense of like, I don't know, I have a lot of friends who also come from, you know, their families come from migration backgrounds. And one of the things we often talk about, it's like, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, come to this country and get this house so that we could go sleep in a tent. Yes. <laughs> and I don't know, it was funny because we used to go camping as a kid and my mom, um, she hated camping. She hate my mom hates being dirty. She likes to shower in the morning and at night. You know, she really likes being very clean. Likes to sleep on clean sheets. And I think camping was her worst nightmare. And we used to we used to joke that she was um, we used to call her a Gucci camper because she was just really like, you know, she'd bring her fancy clothes and we'd be like, what are you, what are you going to do with that? You know, she'd bring perfume and then she'd be like, what are you buying me? And it was just really it was one of those things where I was like, I did not come from the Patagonia wearing outdoor family, you know, like that was not how I grew up at all. Yeah. Um, and that was, I think, important for me to say, like, that doesn't mean that I can't also find ways to experience the natural world. Mm -hmm. um, there's not a one size fits all approach to what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. And that is so well, well said and, and totally needed for me as a reminder to keep taking that on board you know because there is the as I say every time that I try and push out of my comfort zone and say hey you know let's go let's go here and try this area and um, there is that fear that comes up and that that idea of like what we're going to find there how we're going to be received that sort of thing so um mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Thank you for that reminder. Just a, a couple of more things, but we've been talking about your writing. But then within the your second memoir, um, there's a letter from your grandfather, a very long letter that you couldn't read, but you had it translated. And, and an image that stays with me is um, the idea of the thin paper with the text on it, with the light coming through the paper. And that reminded me of, you said maybe a landscape, a vertical landscape. And that idea of, how do you say, is it palmless step? Or the palmless? And how, in a sense, that we're made up of all these different layers as human beings, um, these different layers that we we take on board, but then also that are passed down to us. So, you know, the, this book is around y- your ancestry um, and Taiwan, and, and but the forest and the natural world and what we said about this migration culture, you know, your grandfather's time, they were a rural, rural population. They did have that. To that natural connection with nature and that has been lost yeah I mean I think for my grandfather it was interesting because he grew up in the countryside um, and then ended up moving there was a lot of sort of turbulence through his childhood in China and and um, you know through the 20s in particular and so they moved into Beijing they lived in the city and he sort of moved around back and forth and so he had I think he had this really early connection with land um, and with landscape. The biggest thing I know in my grandparents' story is is the idea that they were cut off, that you know their ties were severed to not only their actual families, the people, but to the places that they came from. They never got to return after the Civil War. Um, and so they sort of spent their lives living elsewhere. And one of the things that I think is a great inheritance that, you know, sort of survived nonetheless, particularly for my grandfather, is this attentiveness to plants. So, you know, he might not have been able to go back to where he came from, but he had a good knowledge of plants and of gardening. And he passed that on to my mom. He was always an avid gardener. And, and, you know, through my mom, I've also picked up a lot. And that for me feels like I guess a kind of lineage. You know, we may not be able to be rooted in a particular landscape, which I think perhaps because of this perspective that I have, I tend to view the idea of being able to say my ancestors were on this land and my ancestors before me and this is our land. That seems like a very privileged kind of statement to me. Mm. Um, And I know obviously that, you know, that has its complications, uh, particularly for communities that, you know, you know, might not be thriving right now, but where people have lived for generations. Mm. Um, But for me, there is that, you know, I feel that loss of connection to place in my family's history very acutely, but I really, really value the things that were passed down, and that is knowledge, that is affection, that is the art of noticing, I think, the natural world. I think that has been that has been missing within within my life um, until the last few years where I have been really paying attention and becoming more aware. Um, that. Yeah, doing it not because I want something back, but because uh, I, I felt that something was missing, maybe, or it, yeah, because I, I don't want to do that idea that the relationship with nature that I have is a one that is possessive or it's a one that um, take, take, take in that sense. Yeah. 
you know, I do hope there's some mutual exchange going on there. The, the observation has definitely come along when I've been trying to do marrying my identity, my black identity, with my writing and nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've just been talking about your grandfather's letter, but you have also created with a, with a, a team of editors, Willow Herb Review. Yeah. And this isn't like a couple of years in yeah, existence. Yeah, pretty young. <laughs> Since yeah. 2018. Why did you create Willow Herb Review? Yeah, so I founded the Willow Herb in 2018, basically out of frustration, if I'm honest. Um, as a nature writer, I think I had been privy to and had just witnessed a lot of hand wringing for a number of years about the state of diversity in nature writing. People were saying, oh, there are, you know, it's just, it's all, you know, white men traipsing through the countryside. We're not hearing from writers of color. We're not hearing from disabled people. We're not hearing from the wor- the working class. Um, and there was a lot of, like, I just kept seeing newspaper editorials and, and, and pieces like that coming out being like, oh, there's a huge problem with the genre. It has a diversity problem. But no one at any stage would say, hey, actually, let's acknowledge the writers that are doing this work. Let's actually create spaces, you know? So there were a lot of critical pieces coming out, but no opportunities given to actually rectify that. So I started the journal sort of out of frustration at that situation and said, you know what? I'm really tired of the think pieces. I'm really tired of people saying, oh, we have a diversity problem. Mm-hmm. I would really just prefer it if, if you know, we gave space to it and put money in the hands of the writers who could change that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was a very straightforward, like, we'll create a platform, we'll, you know, generate some funds and we'll pay those writers to do nature writing. And, you know, it gives new writers who perhaps haven't tried the genre before an opportunity to try it sort of with, without, you know, huge stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm but also created a platform where we could showcase writers who have been doing this for a long time and say, Mm -hmm. this isn't new. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't need to talk about writers of color as a new thing. We can acknowledge that this is something that has been under, under acknowledged, under platformed, under, under read. So yeah, it was really, it was sort of, (laughs) I I just got a bit sick and tired to be honest. No, Uh, because it, I think what you've said is so true, underread, um, and and almost, I don't know, because of the way things have been set up within publishing, it, they have been hidden. So I came to black nature writing through the USA, getting frustrated for looking from, from a British perspective. And I'm so pleased that Willow Herb exists because... It makes it easier for me to get to to, to read. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because there is that there is that need and want to to be amongst other people that are writing similar things and to think yeah, that you're not. This is what I struggled with at first because it's like I'm I'm you know half Taiwanese half half white British yes, but I would you know I would go to festivals and sit on panels and you know be with other nature writers and it was like I was like the most in air quotes like most diverse person they could trot out and I was like really (laughs) not doing a very good job (laughs) as much as I would love you know the opportunity to talk about and promote my work I also think like I'm sorry but I'm I'm, I can just barely fill that diversity quota for someone and so for me it was also just you know it was about creating a space where I could say you know what like we don't we don't need to get into necessarily the arguments or even the politics of it. We can just do the work of, of giving these opportunities to writers and bringing these writers 
to readers so that readers can no longer say, oh, I can't find any writers of color. Like we have a whole bank of them we've published. You know, there are loads. And the thing is also that I find is how it usually works is that now that, you know, you've got Willa Hood review online and then you get approached maybe from an established organization or council and say, hey, we want to work with you. I mean, and that happened with... um, it was with Epin Forest. Yeah, so it was with the Walton Forest Borough Culture Project last year. And so they had us do a special issue related to Epping Forest and in response to the forest. Um, and that was that was curated by Luke Turner and Kirstine McNish, um, who are based there in, in Walthamstow. And that was really cool because it was the first big collaboration we'd had as a journal. Um, and, you know, it is essentially for us, it, it really is this channel for opportunities for, for new writers or for illustrators in that case as well, to be able to say, we've got this funding and we really actually want, we want to pay you to do this work, yeah. to professionalize it. You know, yeah. like, I think a lot of, a lot of writers don't get a fair rate for their work, are not, you know, are not treated as professionals. And, and we really, you know, would like to change that. So, yeah. yes. um, I don't know. It's a very straightforward, writer-friendly model. That yeah, applaud it, and because it's it stands out because there's so few few of these around. So you applaud you. We are coming to the end here, but I want to I want to ask you about what are your plans? <laughs> I say this: what are your plans when who knows what's going to be happening next week or whatever. How are you continuing to develop your relationship with nature and writing about it? So I think right now, I mean, I should say plan-wise, literally my, my plan for the immediate future is that I'm, I'm actually finishing the next issue of The Willow Herb right now. It's going to be out um, end of August. I'm putting finishing touches on that right now, literally just doing the web formatting. So it's not, it doesn't feel particularly connected to nature. It feels like I'm very connected to the internet. <laughs> um, <laughs> Aside from that, I mean, I'm really excited. We're, we're actually moving. We're leaving Berlin in a few weeks at the end of September. Um, I'm moving back to the UK mm. for a job. And I'm really excited to reconnect with place and get to know a new area. I'm moving actually also to um, Waltham Forest. I'll be moving right near Hackney Marshes in the Walthamstow um, wetlands. And it's not an area I know very well. So I'm actually really excited to connect to that and to get to know it, um, to find new swimming spots. Yeah. And yeah, just to try something a bit different. I think I, I could try to, I, I could be very scared about that, but I'm, I'm choosing instead to be excited. Yeah, that's that's what's on the horizon, I think, for us. But we'll see how it goes. Obviously, everything is pandemic permitting at the moment. It is, it is. Um, and you know, it's, it's finding that balance between making plans and not making plans going with the flow but that sounds exciting to be moving into a new place and new new haunts to explore yeah it's a bit bittersweet but yeah it's the right time yeah okay well we wish you luck with that that move and exploration and again i'd just like to thank you jessica for for being on and having this conversation. Thank you kindly. Thank you.